Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio Simon Black, who is a professor of labor studies at Brock University and founder of Labor Against the Arms Trade, L-A-A-T, a coalition of peace and labor activists working to end Canada's participation in the international arms trade. L-A-A-T organizes for arms conversion and a just transition for arms industry workers. Simon Black will be speaking in May at the No War 2020 conference planned for Ottawa. Simon Black, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. David, thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for coming on. So tell us about Labor Against the Arms Trade. Well, Labor Against the Arms Trade was founded uh, by a number of trade unionists, uh, including myself. I'm a a labor studies professor and a trade unionist, a member of my faculty association of Long, uh, long time involvement in the labor movement, and it was uh, started uh, in 2018 uh, to pressure the Canadian Labor Congress, which is our uh, version of the AFL-CIO in the United States, the National Labor Federation, to pressure the Canadian Labor Congress to take a stand against Canada's arms deal with Saudi Arabia. I'm sure some of your listeners will be aware that Western powers, the U.S. France, the UK, uh, and Canada have been backing Saudi Arabia in its brutal intervention in uh, the poorest country in the Arab world, in in Yemen, which has led to what the United Nations calls the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Millions of people displaced, uh, over 100,000 have been killed in the conflict. Um, And so we realized that the labor movement could and must take action to end this arms deal. There's been a lot of uh, peace activists and human rights organizations in Canada who've been opposed to this arms deal. This $15 billion arms deal with Saudi Arabia, which involves the shipment, the production and shipment of light armored vehicles uh, to that country. And uh, many of us realized that the kind of pressure that was being put on the uh, government of Justin Trudeau, our federal government, uh, that that pressure was ineffective, that the government... Uh, has shown no signs of actually cancelling this arms deal. And what folks in the labor movement realize is that workers actually have the power to bring an end to war. And it's unionized workers who are producing these light armored vehicles that are being shipped to Saudi Arabia. It's unionized workers who are shipping these uh, these light armored vehicles by rail to a port, uh, the port of New Brunswick, um, St. John in New Brunswick, the province of New Brunswick. And it's there where dock workers who are unionized members of the International Longshoremen's Association are loading those uh, light armored vehicles onto Saudi ships, loading the arms onto ships and destined for the conflict in Yemen. Saudi Arabia is one of the International Trade Union Confederation's worst 10 countries in the world for workers' rights. So we knew that, that, that folks in the labor movement, that trade unions had to take a stand against this arms deal. So that's why we've, we founded LAAT in 2018, to oppose this arms deal and to then think through what could labor movement activists do, what could unions do to ensure that workers who would be impacted by the cancellation of this deal could have a just transition, that we, we recognize the need to secure workers' rights and livelihoods when uh, economies, uh, when when firms, manufacturing firms, are shifting from arms production to, to production for socially useful ends. 
So that's in short the, uh, a brief history of the uh, of labor against the arms trade. Have you gotten labor unions to join? Have you had any success influencing the Canadian Labor Congress? And and what are you hoping that that people will do? That they will refuse to to to, to load shipments? Will stop shipments at at ports, as I think has been done in Italy uh, with regard to this very same war, or or file lawsuits uh, based on the 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 illegality of these weapon sales? Or or what are you hoping for? Well, we're, we're hoping uh, to give you a bit more background about uh, how we came about. In 2018, December 2018, peace activists at the Port of St. John in uh, eastern maritime province of New Brunswick, uh, this is a key port for Canadian industry, and it's a key port for the shipment of arms uh, from Canada to Saudi Arabia. Uh, their peace activists uh, assembled on a picket line, a peace picket, and members of the International Longshoremen's Association, so the dock workers who work at that port, uh, ILA Local 273, which has a proud tradition of internationalism and solidarity, they actually refused to cross that, that picket line. And uh, for a day, or two days, uh, the Saudi ship, uh, it's uh, one of the ships that are part of the fleet of the, the Saudi national shipping company, Bahari, that ship uh, was in port, and there were no arms being loaded onto that ship because the dock workers had refused to cross that peace picket. And then in May 2019, we saw a wave of dock workers' action, as you mentioned, across Europe. Uh, Dock workers working with peace activists uh, in places like the port of Genoa in Italy, the port of La Havre in France, the port of Bilbao in Spain's Basque country, had all started taking action, um, refusing treating as what in the labor movement we call hot cargo, treating arms destined for Saudi Arabia as hot cargo and refusing to load and ship those weapons. We realized that the, that the, without the support of the broader Canadian labor movement, those dock workers in the port of St. John were going to be hung out to dry. And, and, and that was the case. The employer there, the port employer, filed an unfair labor practices complaint against uh, ILA Local 273, and now that locals uh, facing very steep fines for engaging in, in what in Canadian law is an illegal political strike. So uh, we, we realized that the Lib Moon would have to rally support. And, and we hope to push uh, more unions to not only stand in solidarity with workers who are taking action against the arms trade, but to encourage um, dock workers again to take sort of th- those sorts of actions and to encourage uh, workers along the supply chain also take actions. And we, we have had some um, su- success in, uh, in gaining labor union support. So the largest uh, public sector union in Canada, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, their Ontario division has come out um, in support of, 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 our, of our goals. Um, in British Columbia, the westernmost province in Canada, the uh, British Columbia General Employees Union has signed on to Labor Against the Arms Trade. Um, we've had a number of MPs, a member of Parliament, and members of Provincial Parliament from the left-wing party in Canada, the Social Democratic Party, the New Democratic Party, have signed on. And then a number of local labor councils, including two of the most important labor councils, two of the most populous cities in Canada, the Vancouver District Labor Council and Toronto's Labor Council, have signed on as well. So we're making progress, and we hope to to give workers the type of confidence they need to take direct action 
against the arms trade, like workers in Europe have done, and like those workers in the Port of St. John did back in December 2018. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Puts the remnants of the so-called labor movement in the United States to shame. It has a long ways to go to catch up. Um, But Canada sells weapons to many, many countries around the world, to so-called democracies like its southern neighbor that uh, wage war uh, more and more deadly uh, than perhaps anyone else on earth, and to numerous brutal dictatorships that don't pretend to be democracies. What is is unique about uh, the Saudi war? War on Yemen, or I should say, the Saudi-U.S. war on on Yemen. Are you distinguishing this one from wars that it's okay to ship weapons to? No, I think this is. I think this this particular conflict, the Saudi-led intervention, a war on Yemen, um, the, the brutality, that the scale of the humanitarian crisis in Yemen has just galvanized uh, trade unionists, has galvanized peace and labor movement activists to take action. So uh, it's not that we're singling this conflict out, but this arms deal, this $15 billion arms deal in Saudi Arabia, is the largest arms deal in Canadian history. It's also the largest manufacturing, advanced manufacturing contract in Canadian history. And it's a deal that's been directly brokered by the Canadian state, by the Canadian government, uh, a Canadian, the, the CCC, the Canadian Commercial Corporation, which is in Canada a kind of quasi-public uh, um, company that helps Canadian companies in aerospace defense um, and other sectors sectors land contracts with foreign governments. So we are opposed to Canadian participation in the international arms trade in general, but right now our campaign is on this Saudi arms deal. And many of your, your listeners will know that this conflict, again, what the United Nations has called in Yemen the, the worst humanitarian disaster in the world, with 24 million Yemenis, about 80% of the population in need of humanitarian assistance, 16 million lacking access to drinking water and sanitation, 60 million food insecure, 3 million internally displaced peoples, 80,000 children have died of extreme hunger since 2015. This is already the poorest country in the Arab world before the Saudi-led coalition intervened. And that intervention has been devastating for the people of Yemen. So we believe in opposing the international Canada's participation in the international arms trade in general, but we are focused on this on this arms deal uh, right now in particular. Uh, we've got about three minutes left. Have you worked on developing an economic conversion plan, uh, looking at the economic as well as moral and environmental, et cetera, advantages of of transferring people into peaceful industries? And 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 is this uh, what we can expect to to hear you talking about at No War Twenty Twenty in in May in Ottawa? That's what we're hoping to do. We're hoping to work with unions who are in the arms industry to undertake this work, to, to, do, to, to create uh, alternatives, alternative plans for production for socially useful ends, really from the bottom up. And in this, we, we take inspiration from um, the Lucas Plan uh, in, in the UK. Uh, under the banner of no arms to production, we want socially useful work, uh, in 1976, workers at Lucas Aerospace came up with a plan to retain jobs by proposing alternative socially useful applications of the company's technology and their own skills. And it's those workers who, through a joint shop stewards committee, uh, the various unions that were uh, had organized and represented workers at Lucas Aerospace, 
they came up with a 50-page corporate plan, which included five detailed technical sections, each 200 pages in length, that really proposed an alternative to arms production by the workers in that company. I mean, the Financial Times, which is, is no friend of the left of the peace movement, called it one of the most radical alternative plans ever drawn up by workers for their company. So as we move towards demilitarizing our economy, decarbonizing our economy, we really look to workers themselves, rank-and-file workers and unions, and their and their leaders to take up the need for uh, alternative production, to replace arms production, and to build a green and peaceful future for workers in Canada and around the world. Wonderful. I will have to look up that plan. I don't know that I've seen that. Uh, what can people do who want to follow along online and find out more about the Labor Against the Arms Trade Coalition? They can They can contact us. You can reach out to us uh, via Twitter. We're at, at LAAT Canada. That's our handle on Twitter. Or you can email us at laboragainstarmstrade at gmail.com. And we, we, we'd welcome hearing from uh, labor movement activists and peace activists in the United States, as, as well as those who are, who are in Canada. Terrific. We've been speaking with Simon Black, who is a professor of labor studies at Brock University and founder of Labor Against the Arms Trade, L-A-A-T, on Twitter at L-A-A-T Canada. Simon Black will be speaking at No War 2020, uh, which is happening the same time as the Kansek Arms Bazaar in Ottawa this May. Simon, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Mary Wynne Ashford, who is a retired family physician with a specialty in palliative care. She was co-president of the International Physicians for Prevention of Nuclear War for four years and president of Physicians for Global Survival Canada for four years. IPPNW received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985. She has received many awards for her work and her award-winning book, Enough Bloodshed, 101 Solutions to Violence, Terror, and War has been translated into Japanese and Korean, and I highly recommend it. She has been teaching thousands of high school students about nuclear weapons and the ban treaty. Mary Wynne Ashford, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much, David. Uh, thank you for everything you've been doing and for your terrific book. Um, you're going to be speaking at the No War 2020 conference in Ottawa in May on the topic of nonviolent success stories and the lessons to draw from them. Uh, what are some of those lessons and how have you been teaching them to high school students? Well, let's start first of all with what are some of the lessons. I was asked to write that book, um, and at the time that I was asked, they said, we want 101 solutions where nonviolence has been used successfully to either prevent or end war. And I thought, well, that's easy. I've been collecting these as sort of an antidote to the despair of nuclear weapons. So I thought, I've got at least 50. And then once I'd signed the contract, I thought, what if there are only 50? But in fact, there are hundreds of examples where... Um, civil society, that is, people who are not part of government or the military, <clears throat> excuse me, have proceeded to um, to end violence in their countries and their communities. 
So what I found in writing the book was I was totally inspired by the amazing creativity, the courage, of course, of people who are going against the prevailing antagonism in their countries, but the creative force of humor and love and integrity is just astonishing. So um, maybe I can just tell you one story that, that really sticks with me, and this is about the role of women. Yes, please. In Sri Lanka, during the war, the civil war there against the Tamil Tigers, uh, the, the rebels, the Tigers, went into a temple where a celebration was happening, and they captured the children and took them away into the jungle. So UNICEF was called to help and, by the women, and, the, um, and then UNICEF advised the women to go into the jungle. UNICEF was able to determine exactly where these kids were being held. So the women went into the jungle in the heat and uh, confronted the rebels and said, you have our children. This is absolutely wrong. This is not standing up for any kind of good force, whatever, and we demand that you release them immediately. UNICEF turned up then with one of their station wagons and served tea and cookies to everyone. The rebel leaders were so astonished at these women and also at the atmosphere that was set by UNICEF that not only did they return the children, but they paid their bus fare back to their village. So that story illustrates quite a number of of the different uh, lessons that I learned by looking into nonviolence. And one is the power of the the force of right, which is what, what the women stood for. But it's also the force of the weak against the powerful. And in a way, it's the the power of humor to disarm. Um, there are many examples where the civil society agents, ordinary people, have used humor in a way that um, it just reaches beyond people's armor somehow and, and allows them to become human again. So those are some of the things that I'll be talking about. I'll be talking about women. I'll be talking about the power of stories because we're influenced by the stories that we hear. We're influenced by the unexpected. And I can remember being at a peace meeting in Honolulu. I think it was 1987. Uh, At any rate, it was just after Ferdinand Marcos had been overthrown in the Philippines. And a Filipino woman, a little tiny woman, the director of the Filipino Y, um, had had been speaking about uh, sex tours. Uh, and uh, at the end, the audience said, yes, but did you have anything to do with the overthrow of the dictator, Ferdinand Marcos? And she said, well, yes, we did. And the audience said, well, what did you do? And she said, well... We lay on the road to prevent the tanks from coming into the downtown, and the other women brought food and drink. They were on the road for four days before four million people finally displaced uh, Marcos, and he fled. So again, it's the story of unexpected courage and just a total integrity of people who are willing to stand up. Now, in, in, I'm speaking with you, Mary Wynn Ashford, from the United States, and in defense of the way my government would handle such situations, don't you think rescuing those children 
could have been accomplished just as well with a missile from a drone. Uh, and, and, don't, and, and, and don't you believe that, the, that you could overthrow a government in the Philippines better by starving its people and arming some rebels? Well, those may sound like very good ideas, but <clears throat> if you want something that's lasting, you don't accomplish it by violence. You accomplish it by moving toward justice. And that often means those of us who are on the outside have to support the movements toward justice. And uh, killing is not a movement toward justice. It simply invites terrorism and reprisals from the other side. And, of course, what they call euphemistically collateral damage. Collateral damage means all the civilians who die uh, during an attack when you're trying to get one person, but instead you get an entire wedding party or uh, a group of civilians in a church. So, yeah, we all know that, that that doesn't work, and we're seeing it again and again. This is the most scary time for me in 38 years of working on nuclear disarmament and peace. This is really the, the time of the most um, frightening uh, changes, particularly changes in leadership, that are promoting hatred and fear. And those are the two things I think we have to struggle most against, the not allowing ourselves to be convinced by fear of the other, and instead looking toward how do we resolve whatever is this conflict with the other. What's becoming really apparent, in the past I think it really did seem that it was conflict between huge groups of people between the Soviets and the Americans. But now it's obvious that it's actually enmity between leaders and that they are stirring us up to uh, to gain the support for more and more military action. And that's what we have to resist. And that is not easy because the, the corporate media is with the, um, the leadership and the promotion of war. So so you're going and speaking with high school students. How are you getting invited to do that? And what are you finding to be the, the mental state and understanding of, of students uh, when, you, when you approach them? Yeah. Um, I have taught at the university for a number of years, and I have high school teachers that I mentored when they were students. So one of them was out walking a dog with me, and... She said how worried she was about her grade 10 students because they were, they were suffering so much anxiety about climate change. And she said, there you are talking about <clears throat> nuclear weapons and war. This was when um, Trump and Kim Jong-un were threatening each other with nuclear weapons. And she said, could you come and talk to my students, but please don't get them more anxious than they already are. Yeah. So... I was thinking that this is this is a difficult thing because these students grew up since the end of the long since the end of the Cold War. Even their parents grew up after the Cold War. So they're not familiar with all of the images that we know from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but they the kids think of of um, science fiction and uh video games as what nuclear weapons are and weapons without consequence. So what I thought was the thing that got me through in all of those years of the Cold War was singing together. That that was just a traditional thing. Whenever we went to a peace meeting, 
everybody sang together. So I invited a group of people that sing in a choir with me, a community choir, and said, do you want to come and just sing? All we are saying is give peace a chance, and we shall overcome and help these kids to feel that there is something we can do. And what we found, and this is now we've spoken to almost 2,000 students, and usually grade 9 and 10, but sometimes grade 11, and usually about 250 of them at a time. What we find is that we present the material about nuclear weapons and tell them this is terrible material because there is still such a danger that a nuclear war could wipe us out in in an afternoon. But we want you to know that there is a treaty at the United Nations. We are well on the way to getting rid of these weapons, to abolishing them, and we want you to be a part of that. So we don't want you to go home and have nightmares about nuclear weapons, but instead think of all the things that we can do to prevent them. So we do show them the true effects of the bomb on Hiroshima and why we as doctors are still concerned after 70, almost 75 years. But then we stop and take a break, and I tell them that we're all emotionally um, devastated by watching these slides, and so we need to just regain our feet, and let's do it by singing together. And of course, they don't want to sing. <laughs> kids, kids like to be in the audience watching singers, but they sure don't want to sing. And eventually, they get onto their feet, and we sing together, and eventually they hold hands, and everything changes in the room. We can feel the the sense of community and the sense of empowerment that comes with with being in a community where you're participating in singing. Then we talk about all of the successes of um, civil society. And in particular, we talk about the Treaty to Ban Landmines, which really started with a small band of people. I think there were 50 of us in London and the UK in 1992, meeting to talk about landmines and whether it might be possible to have them banned. And uh, at the time, I thought it was a wild dream. But in fact, it moved forward very, very quickly. When Princess Diana came on board, more and more people became aware of the, the possibility of a treaty, and we had the treaty signed by 1997. So that was a huge success, and it was really propelled by ordinary people working with their governments all over the world. So it is possible to do these things. And uh, now the current one we tell the students about is the, the treaty to ban nuclear weapons. Now that was really begun by ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And uh, that was started about 10 years ago. But it really took off just um, oh, four or five years ago when young people became really involved. And one of the organizers told me that by the time they were having governmental meetings in Norway, um, those meetings were very much assisted by the presence of hundreds of volunteers, 90% of whom were under the age of 30. We have 20 so seconds left. Okay. So the power of young people to bring about change is one of the things that I love to talk about. And I'll talk more about that at the conference in May in Ottawa. We've been speaking with Mary Wynne Ashford. Uh, pick up her book, Enough Bloodshed, 101 Solutions to Violence, Terror, and War. Mary Wynne, thank you so much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. 
Thank you so much for having me, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.